Hey everybody, it is episode 19 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris, as always, I'm here with Steve. Hey Steve. Hello, hello. Today we're going to do something a little bit different, which is give you a full Boston recap. So we're going to spend the whole episode sort of sorry, not sorry, dedicated to the Boston results, including those from rogues that were out there, as well as other everyday athletes, and then of course, We'll break down the elite races and everything you should be looking at. In addition, we will give you insights from the Boston documentary. I was able to see that this past week, and I've got some takeaways. I won't spoil anything for you, but I've got some takeaways that I think everyone will enjoy, and we definitely recommend you see that once it goes to full distribution. So, let's go to Marathon Monday. I was glued to my screen here at Rogue while Steve was in Boston with our Boston contingent, so he has some first-hand experience from the course. But it was a great day for Americans, although tough day for a lot of people given the heat. So we'll start by first just throwing some love to the Rogue crew that were out there. We had almost 60 finishers, if you look at the final results from our training groups, from you know our general marathon groups to our team Rogue groups, lots of people at the race. And most of them had tough days given the heat, but we did have some some really impressive results that we'll call out here. But from your perspective as a coach being there and seeing the conditions in person, Steve, what were your reactions? Well, I'm always hesitant to give any credence to the heat factor. Uh, just a few minutes ago, I was having a disagreement with Jen Harney, our, 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 training, um, our training guru up in uh, Cedar Park, I just refuse to give, maybe I'm too old school, but I refuse to give too much leniency pre-race to uh, heat and weather conditions. My view is you have a 0% chance of reaching your goal if you adjust your goal. <laughs> right. You have a, maybe if you go through 50% of the race on pace, you still have, in theory, a 50% chance of reaching your goal. I understand that in the most cases, I also have my rule of three, which I've stated many times, which is if you're too fast at some point, you'll pay for it by a factor of three. Jen reminded me that that same factor should tip be in play with weather, which I dutifully tipped my hat. But still, it was a rough day. It was nowhere near as bad as the year before, but it was still a pretty tough, hot day, um, especially for those folks who were out there on the course for extended periods, as always is the case with a 10 a.m. start or in some people's situation, an 11 a.m. start. Um, it makes it really tough to um, be able to, to to deal with weather-related issues once they come up. They're, it's just you're already in the middle of the day, and, and those folks who are running, starting at 11 and finishing in four hours, you do the math. You're gonna you're gonna be out there at the at the hottest and the worst time. So and that sun, there's something about the sun there that is so intense. And there's no shade on the course. No and shade. And when that sun's beating on you and you've been in it all morning anyway, waiting, it is tough. Well, if you watch the elite you. athletes too, I mean, they were just pouring water all over themselves. So uh, it was definitely a warm a warm day. And and everyone who who raced um, who were within five minutes of your goal, you should consider that it absolutely pretty darn close to to nailing it um of course i think that there's each athlete and each coach will determine for themselves what 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 the factor was on that day given their ability to handle heat and a variety of other factors but everyone does need to to be congratulated on continuing to to put one foot in front of the other and go for it on a day where you know it especially early in the week 
or or two weeks before the race, it was really looking like we were going to get a good, nice, nice weather. And, you know, the mental challenges that get into play, we'll get to talk about a couple of these later on today. I'm excited about, but some of those, the mental challenges that come into play when you're standing at a start line for hours, as we've talked about before, Chris, and the challenges of Boston, and then being in heat and then dealing with that throughout the entire, you know, through the prep and the way your mindset gets approached and then how you deal with it all the way through to the end of the finish line. Um, it's an incredibly difficult hurdle to overcome. Um, and, you know, I had an athlete who was going for a pretty fast time who is heat susceptible and I made him, I did everything in my power to encourage him to still go for his goal all the way through to the starting line. And he even wrote a note. He was my roommate for the day and he actually wrote me a note that said, 244, let's go get this. Um, and he was on 122 pace at the half. So I really can't say anything but anything other than the man went for it he paid for it and, and suffered it i wish i wish he had had a better day for that but i was really proud of him for going for it and not adjusting but kudos to all those who did and a couple of our athletes made some adjustments out there on the course yeah. and, and had great days and some didn't i mean jim moore our, our first rogue i think across yeah he in, was in 248 at a couple minute pr sort of got a lifetime goal for him of getting under 250 and he got it done yes he and did so did nora uh, one of our females who's qualified for the Olympic trials before she ran a 248 had a Boston PR by nine minutes, ran basically what she wanted to run. So some people still had good days. And of course, everybody had a good day and that they gave everything um, on the course, as we know, everybody did. So, yeah, our pre-race was a uh, short and sweet, as I promised it would be. And it was pretty much I, I, I encouraged everyone to be a hero. Um, I, I think it was a lot around the doing all the work that we've done on these Boston podcasts really made me wake up to the fact that there really is something pretty magical and special about Boston. And uh, my negativity about the commercialization and maybe the some of the other factors that go into Boston sort of have, have negatively swayed me. But doing the research we did and, and seeing the response in people and, and how they overcome their limits and see things very differently on this day. Um, and honestly, I can say that all the athletes that I worked with, nearly every single one of them were a hero during that race. They, they wanted to bail. They wanted to throw the towel in. They wanted to go easier. And nearly every single one kept shouldering, soldiering on and pushing through the challenges and the pain and the heat and everything else to get to where they wanted to be. So I was at the post-race party, though, I was disappointed overall with our results in terms of what they were in the times. I was extremely encouraged by the toughness that we saw out there on the course from our athletes and really from every athlete that was out there today on that day. Yep. Kudos to all. We had a couple of quick shout outs before we talk about some other things, but one is that our masters men finished fifth in the team competition. Yeah. It's <laughs> really cool. Takes the cumulative time of the top five runners in, in your team and ranks that. And so our masters men with uh, James Greenham, who you mentioned, Mike McGinn, Larry Bright, Brett Weber and I'm blanking on the and Jim and Jim, and Jim yep. got that fifth in the you know of all the teams which is some stacked teams absolutely they got fifth overall and then the uh, the local team from Gilbert's Gazelles Masters females got third so yeah. they sort of podium in the team competition so shout out to them nice work all right so before we go into some more on results I wanted to quickly give a shout out to the recent Boston documentary that was released it's called Boston and American Running Story. I happened to see it last night 
that had sort of a, a one-night event release all across the country. I was able to catch it. I know some people caught it in Boston on Saturday that had the premiere there. Mm-hmm. And I highly recommend it to anybody, whether you whether you like Boston or whether you run or don't run. It's like it's such a great story. And it covers, it uses 2013 and 2014, the bombing and the aftermath of that as sort of the envelope. But it tells you the whole history. It goes into a lot of the stuff we talked about on episode 17, parts A and B with the history of Boston and some of the stories from very early on in that race all the way through today. And it kind of caps it with the story of 2014 and Meb's victory. Very powerful, very interesting. It's going to be something I show my kids to for sure to try to get them inspired just generally, but also hopefully inspired to achieve that themselves one day. So highly recommended. I don't know. I don't think it's been picked up on full release or distribution yet. So I don't think they have more details about where you can go see it now. But look for it. I'm sure it'll get picked up somewhere, either in theaters or on Netflix or something. But Boston American Running Story, it's a must-watch for anybody. There was a pretty big buzz, uh, the folks who saw it before the race, um, that were in our crew. Um, they definitely gave a big shout-out to it at, at, at our at our pre-race meeting so it was really impactful and pretty moving i haven't gotten a chance to see it i'm, I'm looking forward to the, getting to i see was it. i was definitely in tears at the end it was that kind of moving event but a couple takeaways from it that i wanted to share and quickly discuss one is that you get an appreciation for all of the work that goes in to put on the one race on the one day and sometimes as runners especially if we're running the race we forget we kind of think about you know think about it as it's all about ourselves <laughs> But we forget all the work that goes into it, down to the minute details of hanging the Boston Marathon banners on the street signs, you know, by the street maintenance guys. And, you know, they dig up the asphalt at the finish line every year because it gets beat up from traffic. They dig it up, they relay the asphalt, then they repaint it. And the guys that are relaying the asphalt were interviewed that's awesome. in the documentary. And they're so proud of their work. But their co- that's their contribution. They, they show some of the packet stuffing and all the logistics that goes into packet pickup. They show some behind the scenes on security with the police departments and how they're coordinating. All of these jurisdictions across all these cities that it, it goes through on the point-to-point course. They're having to coordinate all that plus coordinate homeland security and... And just all these layers to just protect you, keep you safe, but also make sure you have the best experience possible from from buses out there to start line to finish line. And they and these people are working on it year round. And there's just so much that goes into it. And the documentary doesn't focus on that, but it does give you an appreciation for it. And somebody who sometimes personally loses sight of that, it was a good reminder of all of the work that goes into helping one person get to that starting line or one person get to that finish line. So that's one thing I took away. Another thing I took away is a different appreciation for the qualifying standards discussion. You know, it's interesting. They tell you a little bit of the history. The qualifying standards for Boston weren't introduced until 1970. The initial standards for anybody to do the race and at that time, women weren't officially sanctioned until 72, but any male who could register for the race in 70 had to be under four-hour marathoner. That was the initial standard. And then the race got so popular because of the introduction of the standards that gave people a target that then they had to lower that standard until they got it down to 250 was the standard for men 
in the early 80s mm-hmm. and then it eventually started to flex back up t- and then multiply in in terms of age groups and all of that as we got into the 90s and 2000s but but then they talk about in that context the charity runners and how there's some people in the race that haven't qualified and some people don't like that fact and some people don't like the fact that there are now qualified runners who sit out the race because you have all these charity runners in the race and and I've sort of always been on the side more of thinking about it from the qualifying runners standpoint of man how dare those charity runners take the spot of somebody who's earned their spot but hearing people talk about it they actually showed some interviews from that time when they were introducing the qualifying standards from some of the elite runners Hal Higdon was one that they interviewed who said that he didn't think the qualifying standards were right, that they shouldn't introduce them because this was the people's race. This was the race for everyone. And so, and he didn't want it to be about a race for the elite. And then you have the current race director, Dave Magalveri, who was talking about it, how he, his history with the race precedes that point as well. And, you know, how for him, it's the people's race. And he wants to make sure that not only is the elite, and or the fast element honored but so is the the fact that anybody can do this or anybody can be celebrated in the context of the boston marathon they also talk a lot about the impact of the charity programs and how they're literally saving lives because of the funds that are raised so it changed my perspective or at least gave me insight into the other perspective which is that this started as the people's race so it makes it changed my framework it made me a little bit more open-minded about the fact that you have charity runners in the race and and their role there is to not only raise funds but also to to carry the spirit of the everyday runner the person who can't qualify who deserves to be there at the people's race so that was an insight i didn't expect yeah well i i'm still gonna (laughs) i i I, i'm still gonna disagree but i don't have any problem with the charity aspect i think that um i've always known having seen how charity you know, when I started working in the running industry, this was in the early 90s, um, and the run for the cure, race for the cure, was really the most most obvious and amazing sort of charity event that was out there. And most races before that weren't really looked at from a charity perspective. They were looked at in not necessarily from a revenue-generating perspective as much, but just as a place for people to go run and try to run fast. But I think in my mindset, sort of the race for the cure sort of started to change that. And such an amazing and incredible recognition of um, a health challenge and an opportunity to fundraise and raise awareness about a health challenge is to me a really, really positive thing. And many of the stories that they tell in Boston are revolve around that. And I think they're really impactful. My one challenge, my one problem is that when they made the decision in 1970 to change and to make standards. So now the race is a standard race. So now it's the Olympics for the everyman. And um, when you set a time for people to reach, to, in order to reach that goal, and then you move the standard on them every year by whatever amount that the standard needs to be moved for the charities, I have a real problem with that. My problem is not the charities are there. My problem is that set the time and stick with it or at least make it adjust each year with plenty of time so that people can make the adjustments necessary and then allow the charity folks to scramble for the other openings and then they can really even more appreciate the people's component of the race because they're allowed in to a race that is 
a focal point for the Olympics for the Everyman. Um, and, you know, my guess is that many of the people that are in the charity race, they could qualify for Boston on their own. That just Some of them are just looking for a way into the race. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that for everybody, and I'm not changing the fact that – I'm not denying the fact that the charities are important. I want people to hear that. Sure. You can paint me with whatever brush you want to, but the fact of the matter is this. Let the people who run the time get into the race the year that they ran that under every circumstance and then adjust it the next year. It's unreasonable to bait and switch on people at the Olympics for the everyman. That's my argument. Fair enough. Drop the mic. I, I won't <laughs> argue with you on it. I have my perspectives, but we've got other things to get to, so we're going to skip past this. But I do think for those that think that way, this film gives a different perspective especially on the history and heritage of Boston as the people's race. The last takeaway I have has to do with Shalane's race in 2014. And we talked about this this morning. I don't think I had an appreciation for her as a runner or as a human, and certainly not for that race for her that I have now based on watching this film. And that year, 2014, I was in the race. I got a last minute qualifier because I wanted to be there. I wanted to be a part of those that said we're going to be there because we're not afraid. And so I was there and I was about mile 19 when Meb won and somebody yelled, Meb won, Meb won. And I didn't believe it because I <laughs> thought surely they were delusional <laughs> and and ultimately didn't really confirm that he had won until I crossed the finish line. But I didn't get to see, and I, then I saw a lot of Meb's stuff because he won and that he got all the attention. I didn't see a lot in the aftermath of Shalane's race. And yeah, I knew she led for a long time and kind of went, took it out from the gun and all of that, but I'd never really seen a lot of the footage, hadn't really internalized it until they covered it in the film and they covered it significantly, maybe even to some extent more than Meb's story because a lot of people know that one. And, you know, Shalane grew up in Boston. She has a really special connection to the race because it is her home city. Her also, her parents were really her, competitive her distance runners as well. Her mom was a world record holder in the marathon. Yes. In the marathoner. So she was one grew, that grew up like many of the old older athletes, not older, but you know, athletes from the 80s, 70s, 60s that wanted to do Boston because they grew up watching it. Yep. She was one of those people, one of those kids that grew up watching Boston with her parents and was inspired by it. And so she came into that race, especially with the motivation from 2013, and she wanted to take it. She wanted to, to not just win because she you know, happened to get lucky and have the right tactics at the end. She wanted to take it from the gun and win the race from the front. And if you watch her, you know they were running single file for about 18 miles right behind Chelaine as she went out at one point in 218 pace. And... And then you see her get gapped and you could see the anguish on her face as she realized that they were going to go. And at that point, there were four women in front of her that that weren't going to be stopped. Right. Once she realized she was falling back, you could see the anguish, but you could see her still fight through all of that and still finish in a very respectable. I think it's still now an American record time of 222 on a day that was a little bit warm, too. It yeah. wasn't as hot as this year or last year, but it was still a little bit warm. And then she collapses at the finish line because she gave everything. And then now you find out that Jeptu, who won, busted. I didn't remember this, but some gong was in that race, finished fourth. So also now busted. So you take away those cheaters. Chelaine's on the podium at a minimum, and who knows where she might be if we knew who was really clean. 
and then that changes people's perspective on on her in that race. But I guess the appreciation I got was you saw her wear her heart, even though she wasn't in words. You know, Kara, we talk about how she's authentic and shares all of her emotions, but she usually does it in words. Shalane that day did it with her race mm. and with the emotion that she showed as a part of that race and at the finish line. And you could tell she was so gutted as she collapsed the concrete at the end to be fifth. And so it just gave me an appreciation for that. And also a reminder, as we said in the last episode about where we talked about doping, that you have to celebrate fifth. You have to celebrate sixth. You have to celebrate Des, who wasn't on the podium in fourth this year because who knows? It was a beautiful race and who knows, right? <laughs> so anyway, so I, I got to give Shalane some love. And I think people need to remember that what she did was almost as powerful as what Meb did. And it may be in some ways more powerful because she ran like what Meb did would happen by accident in some ways. I'm not taking anything away from Meb. He got but a he little got, lucky. He got lucky. He, he got gave, a he little got, lucky. He got some rope. Now we make went, our own he, luck. And he went with it. Yes. And yes, everything he did in that race was as amazing. But Shalane got no rope. Yeah. But she and she wanted that was her strategy. She didn't she get rope. She going, pulled the rope. She pulled the rope. <laughs> so you know, and then it didn't work out. And she was beat by people that are cheating. And it's like that's not that's not cool. But what she did and the way she did it to me is now much more inspiring than it was before I saw the film. So that to me is another highlight. Shout out to Shalane. Yes. Now we've got results to talk about from this year's race so let's get to that we got to recap our predictions Mm -hmm. we'll start on the women's side we both correctly and ultimately you get more kudos because you had this from the very (laughs) beginning correctly picked the women's winner yes the kiplagat who we'll talk about her race in a second we whiffed on our on our second and third place choices I whiffed probably bigger than you did because you had Toronto in at fifth, I think, or in at third, and she got fifth. And Desi at and Desi at fourth, and right. she got second. So you you had a couple that were close, right, to the podium. You know, my two Besa and uh, and Deba. Deba ended up finishing seventh, so she kind of rallied, but, but I don't even think Besa was out the back at was, ten. I think I remember seeing her. I was like, "Who's that?" She I said, "Oh, got, Chris." Yeah. What you're and <laughs> she didn't. She DNF'd. So. So, yeah, so I whiffed on my second and third place. You had a couple that were close there. And then if you look at the men's side, I uh, correctly guessed Rupp in second, so I get some credit yes, for that. Yes, you do. Yep. You correctly guessed Rupp on the podium, although you had him at first, and you correctly guessed Karui on the podium as well because you had him in your third spot. He ended up winning. So you were, in some ways, three out of six podium yep. finishers, and I was two out of six. Yep. We still did pretty good. I mean, when you think about how open, wide open that race was, the only slam dunk in that whole thing really was Edna Kiplagat. Right. And uh, and she even wasn't a slam dunk just given her age and given um, not knowing exactly where she was at. But, you know, you, we had seen a few race performances from her earlier in the year and, and, and the year before that were lining up. Um, you know, I had the chance. To, I listened to a lot of the pre-race on in, from, the, in the, from the hotel in the in the. Um, it was the Boston live feed, which was absolutely phenomenal. And by the way, Shalane was the color commentary where the, or the talent commentary on that, along with Tony Revis. They did a fantastic job of play-by-play. If you ever get a chance to listen to it in Boston with those two, they, I, my estimation of Shalane went through the roof hearing how humble she was. 
she discussed her challenges, um, not necessarily from the 2000 year in particular, but just how much the hills crushed her. And in her that talk, you would have thought that she had run 245 or something and died. <laughs> right. Not that she ran 222 that day. No wonder she died on heartbreak. <laughs> right. She's like, it is heartbreak for me. And, you know, it was <laughs> it really was in a lot of ways for her. But I, I, I tip my hat to Shalane as well for that. But, man, Edna Kiplagat, I mean, say what you will. That was the move she made was author- authoritative. It was instantaneous, and the race was over. It was absolutely over. Finish. It was so over that she was able to get a gap, stop at the water station, figure out where her bottle was for about 30 seconds, restart, and still not even have been threatened. Yeah, I don't know the exact splits you might have them, Chris. I don't, but at the end, I heard Shalane rattling off for her. Listen to these last three to four miles, and it was 506, 505, 504. Folks, this is at the end of 26.2 miles, and she's running sub-1530 pace. It's just it's just mind-boggling, which, of course, unfortunately puts a little bit of a question mark in there. But again, I'm going to I'm going to say innocent till proven guilty and and just tip just say that was one of the most incredible performances in terms of just decimating a field that I've seen in a long, long time because those girls were together for a long time. And. Hats off to Dez. She did a lot of work. She, she did. a little bit more work than I thought she was going to do. But, you know, it's funny that those first 10 to 15 miles, it didn't look like anybody was doing work. Dez was just leading. Yeah, she wasn't she's... really working the way that we talked about Shalane right. in 2014. So, um, but we thought we thought Edna might get it. It was hard to tell the way those people were, the way the, the, way the race was ebbing back and forth. But, man, she just crushed it. And, of course, as we're going to talk about, I'm sure, little Jordan Hase. I mean, <laughs> who expected that? And we expected her to have a good day. I think Let's Runs, um, uh, Robert uh, Johnson. Uh, Robert Johnson of the brothers said that he was certain that Jordan would be in front of Des, which I did not see coming. So I'll, I'll give him some kudos for that. But man, what a consummate, incredibly poised race, especially when you consider the dramatic circumstances surrounding her preparation for the race. So, yeah, before we get to Jordan, a couple notes on Kiplagat's race. She ran, I think it was a 508 up Heartbreak Hill that mile, mile 21. <laughs> and that's what gapped everybody, <laughs> right? I wonder. And then she was gone, and then she kept rattling off low fives all the way to the finish. She ended up with a three-minute negative split, run basically 112.30 and then 109.30 as the temperatures rose to near 70 degrees. So it was a stunning finish, and she ended up with – a gap of a full minute to second place by the end, you know? So yeah, I do think it raises some question marks, but you know, as Desi said at the end of the race, she said, if anybody, if you can believe in anybody, it's Kepler got because she's been doing it for a long time. She's also coached by her husband. She trains alone essentially. So she's not in the midst of those sort of Italian led groups that we've questioned before. So hats off to Kepler got, Chalimo held on nicely, although Hase was right there. Chalimo was the girl in the white who actually at one point made the race. She started she the pushing before Kiplagat really went. She's the one that kind of cracked Desi initially. And then I thought for sure once she started doing that that she was going too early and that she would fade more at the end than she did. But she held it together for second, about a minute back. And then Hase was, was right there too. I mean, she was only nine seconds out of second place at the end i do think i get a tiny bit of credit for for calling her a bit of a dark horse in yeah, our she last did. podcast i for some reason had more confidence in her than i did desi 
but great races from all of them and i think it was it was a fun race to watch it was you know um it, it was, was fun to watch des you know i got to, again i got to listen to part of that race on um the boston live feed on the on the tv and um shalane was indicating you know on the 16th mile chris and i made we, as we suggested in our race plan was be very careful on that 16th miles it goes downhill yep. and you can really f- you can really fall into the trap of either feeling terrible and feeling like you have to accelerate down there which will blow you up or getting caught in a little prematurely to moving f- your paces down too fast and then having issues through newton hills um and it was like desi had listened to our podcast and was <laughs> literally running it I, I think she has a little bit better insight into that both having run it herself and having an amazing coaches but anyway we'll take we'll take credit yeah. wherever and right. uh desi des ran that ra- that section she was right on her even split through there she even was running the tangents in a really intelligent and smart way and she ran as she ran back up onto that field at a mile eight by mile 18 she got reconnected maybe 17 and a right. half or so Just around there before the big yeah, move. she got contacted back contact and I was like and she looked great and you could tell it looked like she wanted to go but she was a little worried like it was too early and maybe she should have in hindsight maybe she should have been the one to try to crack it to see if anything would have shooken out in a different way but I don't know. I mean, the, the uh, got I don't think was going to be denied, and the other the other three just the other two athletes just had amazing days. I mean, Jordan Hesse is just amazing. Hats off to her. It was a three minute debut, or three minute debut record for an American. So she ran basically two minutes fifty seconds faster than Kara debuted when she debuted. So she now has the American record for a first marathon, essentially. And is now the fourth fastest female ever at Boston behind Shalane Dez and Joan Benoit. So that puts her in pretty pretty rare company. And based on her the half the stuff she did with her halves in Houston and, and Prague, she is the future of women's marathoning, I think you can say. You know? Shalane I think will be there. It'll be fun if they can get in a race together at some point. Because I think I think Shalane has some years left in her, but but Jordan's Jordan's the next big thing and she proved it. Absolutely. Um, and I don't know if people know this backstory. It was kept very quiet and very private. But but um, Jordan's mother, who was her inspiration to start running, passed away unexpectedly in November. Um, Jordan was on her way to a race and actually got pulled off the, co- off the plane. And Alberto had to tell her what happened. And I guess there are some, no one, they haven't really announced how she passed, which is a little, little unusual. But regardless to say, an incredibly tragic scenario for Jordan and people usually uh, don't handle that kind of personal dramatics and that kind of personal tragedy um, in the way that Jordan did. She definitely channeled that sadness and that, uh, that, that heartbreak into something amazing. And um, man, I, it, it, I don't know if you, anybody got to hear her interview post race yep. with the Boston um, commentator that was there. But it was it was incredibly heartfelt and very 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 she 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 cried tears of joy and tears of sadness and um, just played out just showed herself for the humanity that is there and which you know with these elite athletes sometimes we don't get that sort of humanity we we feel like they're sort of forced into roles of being um, a role model or not a role model or whatever else I even heard in Desi's sort of post. Her, her sort of post-race immediately after the race, she was just immediately went to great races for all involved right. instead of sort of like 
God damn it! I Woe wish I had that. Yeah. Fuck! Like I, I, like <laughs> what you know she's feeling. It's like right. give it to us. But Jordan's was just sort of swung the pendulum back and forth between a variety of different things. It was just super. And, sh- and good she's to see one that. to root for. Oh yeah, I mean, no she's doubt. She's been a precocious runner. I mean, she was in the 2000 Olympic trials, 1500 meters, and she's kind of underperformed expectations between then and now. And so it's great to see her finally find her distance, because she's an athlete that you can definitely believe in and get behind and so and props to Zalazar for seeing that she was going to be a marathoner I don't know that I would have I don't know that I would have called that and she's only 25 folks absolutely I think we've got a lot of good years for Jordan she's one to watch for sure I'm a fan myself now let's talk about Des because like I said we got to celebrate and I think it's easy for people to forget about her race but we can't we can't let people and we can't because not only you know did she have a great race and she led it for a bunch of it made the race but she's a great person. There was a quote I saw from one of her pre-race interviews. Somebody asked her, because she's got a whiskey collection, as we've talked <laughs> about, you know, what whiskey she would drink if she actually won. You know, thinking that she had a favorite or an older, more expensive one that she'd pull out. And her answer was simply the closest one. That's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So that's what I love about her. It's like she's just a blue collar, what you see is what you get kind of person. And it's sad to me that she's never had her day at the front. She's never won a race. Yeah. Period. High school, college, and now at the professional level. Never won. She's been second many times. And so what I wonder with her, and I'd be curious to get your... And you could see, before I get to the question, you could see in her interview, she's like, I don't know where to go from here. Like, I've tried a lot of different things, and then I just got beat. So you could see her struggling with that. And, of course, we all struggle with that right after a marathon, so she'll figure it out. But for her... What what can she do? Because the thing to note is that she ran dead even, dead even splits again. It's like she's so good at rhythm running and just getting in a pace and getting in a groove and staying there. I mean, she ran 112.30 first half, basically 112.30 second half for a 2.25, a very respectable time on a warm day in Boston for fourth. All of that's good, but how is she going to win a race? What strategy does she need to do that? You know, I... The Hanson's, pro- the the Hanson's distance project that she's in that she runs with is um, those coaches. They they turn over every stone, they 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 do everything that there possibly is to do. But my suggestion is, as I've said this to athletes that I've worked with, who you get to a point where they're just not getting it done. Is the first thing I would suggest is a coach change, and that's not to say that the Hansons have not done an amazing job. I don't know that. Des would even be in the conversation without the Hanson brothers. So I think that I don't want to take anything away from what they've done, but in my experience as a coach with athletes who don't, who, who after three to four to five races don't get to where they need to get is to consider a change. Now as a female athlete, she has a huge number of guys to run with. So it's not a question of going into another training group because she's got a training group. I don't know how much of the work she does on her own, but she doesn't have to do any work on her own if she doesn't want to. So in some sense, it's like, how would you... So I, to me, it's more along the lines, not necessarily... There might be an energy change that needs to happen a little bit. There might be even a um, just a, a periodization change or a different way of doing things. People fall into very... No matter how much adjusting that you do, shifting and switching a coach can be a difference maker and be the thing that lifts you above in a different way. Again, I'm not suggesting that that is what needs to happen, but it's something I would look at if I were because I don't know what else there is. The only other thing that I would looking at looking at Des and the way that she races 
more surges, more aggressive surges. Be willing to make those. If, but I don't know that Des has the ability to effectively do that um, over 26.2 because you'd kind of have to be at another level to be able to do that to your competitors. Well, and you could see with Hesse when some of those gear sh- changes started to happen, she was able to, without too much energy e- extended, match those moves so that she didn't bury herself. But you get the sense that when Des matches those moves, because she doesn't have the raw speed and history in the shorter stuff, it's she can't cover those moves and not waste energy. So... It also makes me wonder, does she just need a couple years away from the marathon where she just gets back to the basics of working 5K, 10K stuff? I think she's approaching an age where that can be a challenge. It's too um, late. Maybe it's too I late. I don't know if it's too late. I think it's the, how her body's ability to adjust to that. No, but, you know, Dina Castor kept doing it for a long time. Um, I think mental approach is a bit – I think looking at what you're actually doing – training would be one thing and then maybe a mental approach that says I've got to work on this shifting I've got to be better at it because I don't think in the marathon that it's wheels that give you that shift ability I think it's practicing it and being ready for that having as we'll talk about in a little bit the resilience to know what's coming or to create it because when you watched her she led but she didn't she didn't do what Shalane did in 2014 no she did not she just she would check the field a little bit she would go over and get her water and do a couple things she ran a few tangents but Basically, she was just running with the pack. They were all just waiting to see what would happen. And so, you know, I don't know. I, I think, in my mind, Des goes down as one of the great American marathoners in history, male or female. She will always be, unfortunately, she didn't get the big win, which could never give her the opportunity to be the greatest. But I think the inspiration that she's given both men and women to see someone who calls their shots. And in the marathon, calling your shot is a very, very difficult thing. The pressure of calling the shot that she called and saying, I'm all in on this. Um, no one was asking Jordan that. Jordan just got to run against, run a race the, against the people that she was running against and adjust to whatever happened. Um, she didn't have to say, I've got to make this or break this or stick or whatever because I want to win. I'm going to win. She said to herself, I'm just going to stay. It's stay here for as long as I possibly can. There's a lot of pressure when you make that kind of a prognostication, when you when you point at the at, at the monster and say, I'm going to knock a home run right now on this day. And in the marathon, that's a, that's a very dangerous game. So, you know, I don't I don't know that she's ever going to be able to slide and slip in, but I still think that there are more marathons in Dez's future, and I think she can run faster. I think she can make another Olympic team. It'll be just interesting to see if she chooses to do that because she's been at this for a very long time. I would also love to see her take a race by the horns like Shalane did at some point and figure out whatever the, the most whatever the fastest pace she feels she can sustain for the whole race and just go without looking back, without checking, without sort of keeping. Because she did it at the Olympics for a little bit too where she went off the front when the pace slowed, sticking closer to her rhythm, but she didn't take the race and just go. But she doesn't shift. She doesn't. She only times we've ever seen her shift was when she threw down at the end of was it 2011 or 12 at Boston? When she, when she tried to shake them late, late, late in the race. Right. And at that point in time, it, it, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking something more aggressive earlier on. Um, you know, but the, the, the level of field that these women are running at, the, the, the talent level that's out there, you know, I think that's probably the most discouraging thing to Des to say, I've done every single thing I can possibly do and I can't get there. I, I, I do... I did feel badly for her after her race. And how can you say that when she ran 225 and was fourth at the Boston Marathon? <laughs> right. I mean, it's just, right. 
It's well, the same thing we, we feel about. We love Dez. We're yeah. playing armchair quarterback probably unfairly, but yes. we do love Dez. And Please want, take want, that into account. want to yeah. make sure that she gets proper due and respect. Correct. Because she definitely ran an amazing race on Monday. So let's switch to the men's side. I think we've got to get we've got to get this off our chest. We've just got a little, you know, touch of negativity we got to talk about which is that you picked Karui on the podium, but we both texted each other during the race as he was basically leaving Rupp in his dust and sort of said, "This is bullshit. <laughs> this isn't real. What we're seeing is not real." And I think that's one thing as a fan you got to recognize is when is what I'm seeing bullshit. You know, when does it say, okay, these performances aren't possible without artificial support? And Karui is one that we both say we don't believe in it. Doped. Doped. Because he ran a 427 mile, 24th mile on a hot day, leaving Rupp in the dust as if he was standing still. I think Rupp ran 38 that 438 yeah. that mile or something. Yeah. So Which is 4, 427 is faster than world record pace. <laughs> In the 24th mile of Boston on a hot day, and it made it look easy like he was jogging. And I'm sorry, it's just not real. So Who's his coach? Canova, our good friend that we <laughs> talked about, the Italian. Yes. 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 And who, by the way, also said, this is just the beginning of his potential. We've only trained him like 70% for the marathon at this point. And so you just got to roll your eyes. Canova also recently came out and said, he doesn't believe that Kenyans are affected by EPO because their genetics are already so superior. It's a convenient. That's so a really convenient. Anyway, so there's just more red flags than ever around that group, especially after, you know, some gongs positive, even though she doesn't train with them. It just tells you that that whole machine is is dirty. It's corrupt. And so, you know, and, and people could argue Rupp's dirty, too, but he's not taking EPO. So let me give you one other example of as a, as a coach, since we talk about coaching principles and other things. I got to hear Tony Rivas. He was one of the commentators, as I said, and he, he had gotten some insight. He talked to Canova before the race about Karubi, and, and Rivas also saw him as a potential racer. And um, Canova had downplayed Karubi's ability to win this race primarily because he had stayed at altitude, and he lives, so he stays at home. He lives at home, and his, uh, his home is 8,000 feet of altitude. And Canova was like, he never came down to E10 to do the race-specific work. So he wasn't confident in Karui's ability to do to, to match the changes and to get into the paces necessary to, to compete. But, of course, Boston is one place where pacing and hitting specific paces for 202 or 203 or 204 is really irrelevant because you're not right. going to run that fast unless you've got, you got a torrential tornado behind your back, right? So it goes to show to me, in my mindset, is he hadn't even done appropriate preparation for his own coach to think that he was prepared to win the race. You know, so that's a fluke. I mean, that's reading into it. And maybe that's Canova sort of, you know, massaging, pull, massaging <laughs> and pulling the wool over people's eyes or whatever. But regardless, I will say that I had never seen a machine or a metronome at that race run look like that. Watching someone we know to be as perfectly well-trained as you can possibly be for that race, and who also is an effortless and very smooth runner, although he's bouncier and a little more, you know, he's got more ballistics going on, Galen Rupp does. But it, you, you knew it at 20 that Galen was probably not going to be able to do it. And, and because of the E, at least I could see it, watching how easy Karui was. Now he was looking around like, well, you know, at some point I'm going to make a move, but I don't know when, and okay, now... And then he was gone, and he looked so smooth doing it. And I'm sorry, I just don't believe it. 
I think Rupp's your rightful winner of this race, and I think it's too bad, honestly, that that Karui is even allowed would even be allowed to compete. But you know, the other thing you start to recognize is a pattern developing in that Kenyan marathoning world where you see some of it's it's become a bit of a factory of athletes that they're they're getting the young guys they're getting them doped up they're getting them through having big results and then once they get a little bit older and the new breed starts coming in they discard them so if you look at Kamado and Mutai and Macau and all these guys that have some history they're kind of discarded for the next younger except for one <laughs> which except for your buddy my my boy Kipchoge, my yes. boy Kipchoge but the one I'm holding out that, hope that's a conversation for another day but <laughs> but anyway point is we don't believe in Karui. I think the evidence is there both in his affiliations but also in what he did running a 427 in mile 24 but props to Galen Rupp I think this was Galen Rupp's best race in the marathon yet Um, second place at Boston I think if it would have been so amazing for him to get the win, but you could tell he'd throw, he threw in everything he could throw in. He, he did. did the things that he had to do. He wasn't as aggressive. One of the things that's important is the way Galen's going to throw moves in is you're not going to see him. He's much better at keeping good mechanics and his mechanics not changing. But you could tell based on facial expressions and things, they were throwing down on each other for a sure. window there. And Galen threw a few times and he also took, he took yep. Karubi's punches. I was hugely impressed with Galen's ability to race, and I bullish on Galen winning the next Olympic Games in the marathon because I think he's going to be able to win in a big-time race like that. He ran into a buzzsaw at this race, one in which I think in the future we may be able to ascend him to his rightful (laughs) position. We'll see. But props to Galen for getting it, for racing, and props to Alberto Zalazar for getting it right. That is hard to do. He got it right with three different athletes who were on the podium at this Boston Marathon. Yeah, many people don't know, but the Japanese guy who finished third, Asako, trains with the Oregon Project. He's one, ostensibly one of Rupp's training partners, although we don't know exactly how much they run together because Asako's coached more by P. Julian, who's sort of the assistant in that group. But you're right, three podium athletes, and Asako kind of came out of nowhere, and he was in the mix for a little bit. I mean, there was some... Maybe question marks of could he put, you know, about 21, 22, could he put some pressure on Galen? Well, Galen looked mix? over his shoulder a number of times. I think that sort of sort of helped. But I'm sure when Galen looked over his shoulder and saw who was behind him, he probably felt a little more comfortable if he actually could tell who it was. <laughs> right, right. Because at that point, I've you know. I've this guy before. <laughs> yeah, I, I do it every day. So I can, oh, I'm not sure he's going to own me like another Kenyan slipping up in the slipstream might, but. So, yes, you do mad props to Rupp, mad props to Salazar for getting his protégés on the podium it was you know i i sometimes am a am not a salazar fan because of some of his antics but it was cool to see him with jordan and with galen at the finish line sharing that moment where you could tell he's like i've been here you're now here there was this sort of coach athlete moment of sort of recognizing the the importance and you could see he was like a proud dad in some ways but also understood what they were going through having crossed that finish line as well himself. That was pretty cool and powerful to me. Yeah, it was uh, and it was a good day for American marathoning across the board too, Chris. I mean, we've got, we got great results, a pretty good depth of results um, on both the men's and women's side. So it was six, solid. Six U.S. men in the top ten. The most we've had is five in, in recent decades is five in 1995. 
or three a few times in between now and then. So that's impressive. Yeah. And then you had on the women's side, third and fourth mm-hmm. with Jordan and Desi. And, and there were some other U.S. women just outside the top ten that are ones to look out for. So a great day. And if you're a, a U.S. American marathoning fan, the torch is being passed to, to Rupp and Jordan Hesse for sure. And so it's exciting to see that. We've got a couple of young guns that will be competing at the very highest level for a long time because they're both still pretty young. And we haven't, you know, we've got we've got Molly in her last Molly Huddle in her last few years. I think we should see good some great more for great sure. marathoning Especially from her. Especially as she starts to focus on the marathon. And her training partner Emily Sisson who we've talked about, Natasha Rott. We've got some people who on the men's and women's side who are who are looking really really good. So we can't talk about this race without talking about Meb. Yeah. Because I mean, he finished 13th. Well, you know, the thing that's great about him is, you know, he has zero reason at, I think he's 41 years old. He'll be 42 when he runs New York as his final race. He loves the symmetry of those numbers. This will be, this was his 25th marathon. His 26th will be New York to, to sort of match with 26 miles. And he'll be 42 in New York, equivalent to 42K for the marathon distance. So, I like that symmetry too, but it's great to see him not just treat it like a victory lap. You know, he was telling people before in interviews, "This is not a victory lap. I'm I'm going out there to compete," and he did. He was right at the front, and the pace for, ended, a, for a long for time. For a while, and the you know the pace ended up too rich for him. And I know he had a little bit of a choppy cycle this time from his pre-race interviews, but it's so amazing to watch him go for it anyway, and then give. Every ounce of it. You could tell going down that finish straight on Boylston. He was giving everything he had yes. to the race because he knows that's what it deserves. And then he's lingered at, at the finish for a long time, running up and down that straight, high-fiving fans, high-fiving the Martin family, you know, who lost his son in the bombing, and and just soaking it all in, bursting into tears at times, and and really relishing in it. But it was, it's so, it was so cool to see that being his send-off from Boston. And we have to appreciate and recognize what we have because we won't have Meb much longer. No, he's a hero. And, and, but I don't think without Meb, Meb winning Boston would we have... I think we still would have had Galen, but I don't know that we would have the depth that we're seeing on the men's side without that courageous race and without yeah. that win. And he's lifted, single-handedly lifted American marathoning into relevance, in my opinion. I mean, I think Dina... On the women's side, that's sort of been ha- had been happening for a while. But on the men's side, we just, I mean, it was just the doldrums, honestly. Yep. And now you've got younger people moving into the race sooner, as they should. Um, and we see the results coming down the line with the great results we've seen recently. And I think we're going to continue to see this resurgence of American distance running in the marathon continuing. It makes me really happy to no end. And, you know, you can't forget his journey. You know, silver at 2004 Olympics. Missed the Olympic team in 2008. Came back in 2012. Got fourth. People forget that. Yes. Fourth. Almost got another medal yes. in the Olympics. Won New York. Won Boston. Got dropped by Nike. Came back with Skechers. He's had he had a you know a stress fracture in his pelvis that thought he was that was he thought was going to take him out of running. Period. Before he even won New York and got back in it at London. So kudos to to Meb. Yeah, we it's, we love you. We do, and there will be ne- never be another one like you. you in, in, you're one of a kind, no doubt. One of a kind. And then 
last but certainly not least, we have to give a shout out to Catherine Switzer. Yes. Who, at 70 years old, <laughs> at 70 <laughs> years old, wearing the same bib number she wore in 1967, 261. She ran a 444, just 24 minutes slower than when she ran in 67 at 20 years old. That's amazing. And she looked amazing doing it. And you could tell she was coasting a little bit. Not not that she was taking it easy, but you could tell she was, because she had that group of the Fearless yes. 261 with her, yeah. and they were all together, and she was trying to help them, and they were all running mm-hmm. together. But there was kind of this whole community thing, and, and you could tell she would stop and kind of soak it all in at various times. So... You know, I think that was a smooth, comfortable for her for 444, which makes it more impressive. But but still, you know, hats off to her as well for being a pioneer that she was. Of course, we can't mention her name without mentioning Bobby Gibb, who did it the year before she did without a bib, who is perhaps underrated in terms of her contribution to women in Boston. But but Catherine Switzer certainly did it right and did it well this year. Yep. You know, Catherine Switzer also started a race. I had forgotten about this, but she'd started the Avon Race Series, which was a race series for women only in the mid in the mid seventies. Yeah, yeah, so that really was part of that running boom. Was not just men, but women also, you know, doing the same thing. So super cool. More than just a pioneer in the sense of doing making it official that women were going to be running in the Boston Marathon but also then taking it all the way and 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 continuing to take that notoriety and that that recognition and being sure that there were many many more opportunities for women it's just she's a she's a hero also a hero and now from what i understand the BAA has officially retired the bib 261 that's awesome so no one will ever wear that bib again in Boston which i think is also pretty cool Incidentally, associated with that story, I read a recent article about Jocko, the the race official who <laughs> assaulted her on the course that year. And he and Catherine has sen- have since become friends. That's awesome. And he became an advocate with her as they were trying to get women sanctioned in that race. He was actually interviewed in the documentary I mentioned, and and his quote his quote was. I was the number one chauvinist <laughs> in the country. <laughs> the most, the or, most, or, the or, most or, visible. Yeah, let's just or, say or that something like I was a poster child chauvinist or something. <laughs> and and so, you know, and and there's more story there that you'll have to dig into. But but you know, I became a little bit more sympathetic of him as a figure after I learned some of the aftermath and how he became friends with Catherine, helped advocate for women in Boston, recognized his mistake so to speak in that year where he tried to take her bib number so i think that's also kind of a cool part of that story is that we can all learn (laughs) and adapt i mean he could easily be an angry and and look at that as a utter embarrassment and maybe he did and that's when he said okay enough's enough i'm a jackass you know (laughs) right but yeah i mean i think it's it, it is an iconic thing in distance running history and in some sense you got to thank him for creating those photo ops to make it so such a story. Um, yeah. Now, still, ha- how many years later? Forty years later? Fifty years, 50 later. years later? People also yeah. don't know this, but his main issue with Catherine that year was the fact that she had a bib number. He actually wrapped Bobby Gibb in a blanket at the finish yeah. line in '66 because she was cold and didn't have a problem with women women running unofficially, but had a problem with the bib number. That's sort of why the big controversy happened and the conflict happened not to not to sort of 
make him a sympathetic figure at all because you know he had a role and he has to own that but but it's a little more complicated than maybe you see on the surface as it always is yep but it is a worthy goal if it is your goal earning your unicorn is the olympics for the every man or woman i mean there's just nothing else to it and that and it needs to be looked at that way and that's what makes it so impactful so empowering so such a huge moment in people's lives i had an athlete who um hasn't qual who who qualified for the boston marathon just recently but could not run the boston marathon in 2017 and um, she went up to the Boston Marathon anyway. She was supporting a friend who also was on the team running. And her statement to me this morning was, I didn't think it was possible to have that kind of energy and to feel so much a part of something when I wasn't didn't have a bib number and I couldn't get on the starting line. And she was grateful and thankful for that experience because she said, oh my goodness, figuring out how I'm going to manage my dinner the night before, my breakfast the night of, my the my breakfast the day the day of how I'm going to handle transport which bus do I take what reason do I take those buses how do I manage my and I said well you've got a podcast <laughs> but we do make a promise to all of you all this all you sweet listeners out there we appreciate you and we we will put a moratorium on statement about Boston Marathon beyond the casual Boston Marathon <laughs> statement because you can't not talk about running and not say something about Boston but we will cut ourselves off should we choose to digress for any more than a minute on any Boston-related topic until at least 2018. We do appreciate all of your patience with us. We we got wrapped up in it. And as I said earlier on in this podcast, I, I really, truly came to a new and real appreciation for Boston this year based on doing all the work that we did to coming into this. And so hopefully we've motivated all of you, made you see what's right there in front of your eyes that you there are still things as humans that we can do that lift us above the rabble for the day-to-day things that are worth the extra energy the extra effort the extra money the extra time and energy and those around us recognize boston as a thing of value and worth and so if you have a dream to reach this goal all you got to do is put in the work you can get there you can get there I'll be there next year for sure. So that's a wrap on episode 19, all about Boston 2017. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you want to learn more about how maybe you can qualify for Boston, because we can help you do that, definitely check us out at roguerunning.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.